Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're approaching election night, but while people are casting their votes, COVID is casting a shadow on the process. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joins me to discuss the rise in COVID cases and the congressional and legislative elections. But first, on Monday, Governor Brad Little announced Idaho's return to stage three of reopening the state as hospitals in nearly every region were at or near capacity. My fellow Idahoans, we're in a crisis with our healthcare system in Idaho due to the pandemic. Hospitals throughout the state are quickly filling up or already full of COVID patients. And way too many healthcare workers are out sick with COVID. Meanwhile, as we first reported on the Idaho Reports blog, some poll workers in early voting locations have already tested positive for COVID-19. On Tuesday, the state of Idaho's Human Resources Division asked state agencies for volunteers to fill in as emergency poll workers next Tuesday in the event that scheduled poll workers are unable to show up. Those volunteers were told to be ready to deploy to any of Idaho's 44 counties. On Thursday, Dr. Deborah Burke coordinator of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, visited Idaho Falls and met with Governor Little, Idaho State University President Kevin Satterley, State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield, and other local leaders to discuss public health mitigation strategies to slow the spread of COVID-19. And as all of this is going on, we still have that election on Tuesday. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joined me on Friday morning to discuss the intersection of COVID and voting. Thanks for joining us today, Betsy. First of all, we are in bad shape with COVID-19 in the state of Idaho this week. Absolutely, our, our case numbers are just pretty much skyrocketing. Um, our hospitals are increasingly filling up. We're hearing some, some really, really dire warnings from our health officials about where this has headed us. And, and so then, of course, this past week, we saw the governor move us back from stage four of reopening to stage three, which at first blush didn't sound like much of a change. Um, it does not include a statewide mask order, but it does include a statewide social distancing requirement, which I think is pretty interesting. It is mandatory that individuals sh shall maintain social distance under that order, but then it says whenever possible. So it does allow for situations where that might not be possible. And it also allows for, um, well, it exempts religious gatherings, right? And so- It does, it exempts religious gatherings, political activities, and schools. All of those are exempted from the de definition of gathering. And this order is really focused on gathering because public health officials say that's where all these new cases are coming from in Idaho. They're not coming from classrooms. They're not coming from people going to the grocery store. They are coming from public and private gatherings, including family gatherings, weddings, funerals, where people are comfortable and familiar with the people they're gathering with, backyard barbecues and they take off their masks. 
and then the virus is transmitted. And so the, the order includes some very specific mandated limits on gathering sizes. And for indoor gatherings, they can't be 50 people or more. And for outdoor, they can't be above 25% capacity of the venue. I have to say, over the past two weeks, I have sat in on at least one Board of Health meeting for every one of Idaho's seven public health districts. And one of the things, it really depends on the region, right, where they're at with hospital capacity. But you can't look at these things in a silo, right? Because if Twin Falls is full, and they have been full, they are moving patients to Boise. They last week shut down their pediatric unit and had to move all of the uh, children to uh, Boise, St. Luke's. Other places are moving patients out of state or elsewhere in the state. But the problem is a lot of those hospitals are getting full too. Utah's hospitals are getting full. Utah has even said that they are stopping taking Idaho patients as transfers. And the state of Washington has expressed grave concerns about taking Idaho patients from Northern Idaho when our hospitals up there are nearing capacity. Um, it's it's a, a whole system. Um, if just because the cases in Boise haven't yet over or from Ada County haven't yet overburdened the ICUs here doesn't mean the ICUs aren't getting overburdened here because they're getting all the transfers from the Twin Falls area, from even the Wood River Valley, which has had a resurgence of cases. There, there is a lot going on in our state with COVID-19 and it is not abating in any way. You said frustration from Washington, but I, I've also heard, or sorry, you said concern from Washington, but I've also heard a lot of frustration, to be clear, because Washington and Oregon both have had mask mandates in place for a while statewide, and they have lower numbers per capita than we do, while they have to take in our patients because we haven't had as strict of mitigation measures. I thought that was really interesting. It's true. Um, now, I did speak with Dave Jepson, the director of the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare about this this week, and he said they had previously calculated that in Idaho, 53% of the population was under a mask mandate. And that was just based on all the various local county health district or city um, uh, requirements that were out there. And then we saw the Panhandle Health District lift its mask mandate for Kootenai County Right after that, Coeur d'Alene, city of Coeur d'Alene came in and imposed a mask mandate for the city. That is the largest city in the county. That did make a change, however, in the number of Idahoans who are under a mask mandate. Instead of 3%, it's now just barely over 50%, but that is about where it stands. So there are a fair number of Idahoans who are under a mask mandate. And our public health officials, our doctors, our hospital officials have been very clear that wearing masks and maintaining social distance and washing hands are absolutely the best thing we can do to slow the spread of this virus. We do have many Idahoans, however, who are refusing to wear masks on philosophical or political grounds, and we're seeing the result of that in our numbers. Right. And, and to be clear, you don't have to be under a mandate to voluntarily wear a mask. That was one of the messages that we heard from the hospitals this week is, OK, you know, if you're not going to mandate it, you can citizens can still wear their masks. And and that kind of got me to thinking about one of the things that the governor said in his press conference. He he hoped that we're past the point of doubting this virus and its existence and how serious it was. But 
that isn't the case. We saw several people this week doubting publicly the existence of, of the virus, or at least saying that they didn't believe that it was the government's place to mandate masks. Um, and I'm talking, of course, about the Idaho Freedom Foundation video. That's right. And the Idaho Freedom Foundation put out a video featuring 10 current or former Idaho legislators and Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan um, making kind of a declaration saying that they don't believe that they ought to comply with any public health orders and that there may or may not be a pandemic and so forth. Um, really, it's it's kind of going to that root of, of denial of what we are seeing happening right here in our state. We now have more, we've crossed another milestone just yesterday, more than 600 Idahoans have died of COVID-19. But these are people who are saying, oh, we don't don't believe that. We think they must have died of something else. Something else must be going on. And therefore, we're going to resist and disobey rather than just pay attention to what's going on and come up with ways to cope with it and to make the situation better. Well, it's my understanding that not everybody who opposes mask mandates is also a virus denier. There's some room in there, right? For people who say, yes, you know, I do believe that the virus is happening. We are in a pandemic, but I don't believe that it's the government's place to tell citizens to wear a mask. That said, you get into this philo philosophical discussion, right, about, okay, is it the government's job to tell restaurants, like uh, uh, require restaurants to undergo health inspections? Is it the government's job to tell people to wear seatbelts? All these other public health measures that do exist and have long existed in our society. I mean, in some ways, we almost, uh, the governor, who has been quite an advocate of mask wearing and who wears a mask himself when he's out in public, has also been an advocate against a statewide mask mandate, saying that he thinks it's more effective when it comes from local officials based on local conditions, and yet he thinks everybody should wear a mask. And at this week's press conference, he invited some doctors to come and speak as well. And one of them was Dr. Andy Wilper, the chief of staff at the Boise VA, who said they are coping with a huge problem at the VA and at the Idaho State Veterans Home with COVID-19, which is putting many, many Idaho veterans very much at risk. And he called on all Idahoans, all over the state to recognize that veterans sacrificed their health, sometimes their freedom, sometimes even their lives to give us our freedoms. And he encouraged Idahoans to, in his words, exercise the freedom to choose to wear a mask to help and support those veterans and said that it's really the least we can do in favor of our veterans. We're coming up on Veterans Day. It's a pretty strong message. You know, one of the other things that is coming up, of course, is Election Day. We've had early voting in this state, um, in-person absentee voting, and uh, se people sending in their absentee ballots by mail. Um, but already there have been some COVID-related issues around the state. Um, we reported this week on our blog that both Kootenai County and Canyon County have been affected by uh, positive COVID tests, confirmed COVID cases among elections workers. Um, in one case, resulting in the Secretary of State's office having to send help to Kootenai County to make sure that they met their statutory requirements um, so they could continue to operate safely uh, while still allowing people to vote early in person. The one thing that stood out to me from Canyon County, uh, where there have been at least now five poll workers who have tested positive at one of the early voting locations was that they don't require masks for their poll workers. And in fact, the sources I talked to said a lot of people aren't wearing masks and the voters who are coming in are visibly 
older and some of them are using mobility aids and are likely at in that higher risk group. This is really worrisome. I mean, I think there was a lot of angst going into the election about how do you go to the polls safely during a pandemic. And all over the country, including here in Idaho, we have seen the response of people turning to absentee voting, turning to early in-person voting at the polls, trying to avoid large crowds and so forth. But if the polls themselves are dangerous, if it's a place where you could be infected, that's scary because people need and are obligated to and want to exercise their right to vote. And particularly in Canyon County, it's very worrisome to many voters. Um, the Idaho Press published a story this week by our reporter, Rachel Spachek, about the infections among the poll workers and also among elections office staff. And the Canyon County clerk, Chris Yamamoto, um, has uh, expressed um, some uh, reluctance to wear a mask, has been seen not wearing a mask at polling locations and has been asked, why are you not wearing a mask? And has said, oh, they're not required in Canyon County. Now that's a comment we also heard last month from the Canyon County Sheriff saying, this isn't Boise, masks aren't required here. And he wasn't wearing one. But if wearing a mask <laughs> makes exercising your right to vote possible and safe for everyone who needs to exercise that right, then there are reasons to do it whether or not it's required. In some ways, as you mentioned before, Melissa, it's separate from the question of a mandate, whether it's required or not. Every individual is in Idaho is being asked to decide if it's the right thing to do. You know, and in, in, in our reporting, I called up the Secretary of State's office and talked to the Chief Deputy, uh, Chief Deputy Secretary of State, who told me that the Secretary of State's office isn't issuing guidance to the 44 county clerks on how to run safe elections. There's no guidance or recommendation that poll workers and election staff wear masks, that they're leaving it up to the individual counties, but that they would echo what the governor says, that they encourage people to wear masks and they defer to the local government. That means, of course, that there are a lot of rural counties that are not under mask mandates. And we also know that rural populations in Idaho and elsewhere in the U.S. tend to skew older. That's true. In fact, some of, some of our most rural counties in Idaho, um, interestingly, are already all mail-in, um, have precincts that are all mail-in simply because their, their population is so widely spread. And so they may avoid some of that risk simply because they're already accustomed to voting by mail and voting in advance. But for those who, who go to the polls, this is a very real question. How does one protect oneself? Well, and then there's the question of the races themselves and the results that we're going to be pouring over on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Let's start with the congressional races. Um, what have you been seeing in the U.S. Senate race between Paulette Jordan and Jim Risch? This has been a really interesting race at the top of the ticket in Idaho this year. Um, Senator Risch is a longtime office holder in Idaho. He has pretty much always won election handily. Um, and he's been the governor <laughs> briefly. He's been the lieutenant governor. He was a very long serving member of the state Senate. And he has been in the US Senate for 12 years and is now the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, an extremely influential senator, and he is seeking a third six-year term. He's got a very high-profile opponent in Paulette Jordan, who was the Democratic nominee for governor two years ago. 
and in many ways is his opposite. She is younger, she's progressive, she's Native American, and she's making a very active run against Senator Risch. They have both been out with TV ads, they're clashing on the airwaves, they're reaching out to their supporters. Um, they both raised a heck of a lot of money, and it's, you know, it's, it's really the biggest race on Idaho's statewide ticket this year. Um, when we talk about Idaho races, aside from the presidential race, which in many ways is is sucking up all the attention from from voters looking at, at all the various contests. You know, but but the presidential election does have some effects on these um, lower profile races, right? It gets more people to register to vote. There has been an immense increase in registered voters just since June 3rd. We've had more than 99,000 new voters and that so that was the primary that's 99,000 people who didn't vote in Idaho's primary who have since registered and may vote in this general election and that could have some implications for not just the congressional races but the legislative races that will get to later. Um, but but first, I want to touch on Congressional District 1 between Rudy Soto and Russ Fulcher. And there's also uh, an independent can or sorry, libertarian candidate, Joe Evans, in that race. Active, active campaigning um, among is, those challengers. Absolutely. This this has been a hot race. This and Idaho's first congressional district is huge. It goes all the way from the Canadian border down to the Nevada line, and it's the whole western end of the state. And um, First District Representative Russ Fulcher, Republican, the incumbent, is has only served one two-year term. Um, and although he did run for governor back in 2014 in the primary against um, then-Governor Butch Otter, he, he might not be the most well-known Idaho politician. He has a very active Democratic challenger in Rudy Soto, um, who has been actively campaigning across the district, even driving a campaign-decorated RV <laughs> to every one of the 19 counties in the districts over, over the course of the past two months. And another thing that we saw in both this race and the Senate race was that in that one really key stretch of time between the primary and the general election, the big October quarterly report, the Democratic challengers actually outraised the Republican incumbents. Now, there's been one more report since then. It's just for the two-week period in um, the first half of October. And in that time period, the Republican incumbents did outraise their Democratic challengers, but not by all that much. This is a very active race on both sides. And I think we saw the evidence of that in that Representative Fulcher has kind of changed his campaign tactics at the very last minute. Um, he had been pretty much just laying low this whole campaign. He hasn't run TV ads. He hasn't raised or spent much money. He's made very few appearances. And then just this week, just days before the election, he announced a barnstorming tour of the district with nine stops just yesterday and today, <laughs> going all the way from Bonners Ferry down to Meridian. Um, that's a sudden whirlwind of campaign activity, which clearly appears to be in response to the very active challenge that he's been experiencing from the Democrat Rudy Soto. And also uh, Joe Evans, the, the libertarian, has been actively campaigning in this race as well. So so the, there's been a lot going on with that one in the first district. You know, in uh, I, I, as a note on what you said with this last minute activity, it's not uncommon for incumbents who are based in D.C. most of the work week to have to do whirlwind campaign stops because they, they just aren't in Idaho because they're doing their jobs. Is 
is what Congressman Fulcher doing really that different than what we see other incumbents doing, especially in hectic years like this? I think if we compare it to um, how Senator Risch has been campaigning and, and look at those two races, I think that Senator Risch has been considerably more active, although he has not um, you know, responded to calls from his Democratic opponent for debates and things like that, which um, Representative Fulcher also has not done. Um, Senator Risch has been all over the TV airwaves with campaign ads, talking about things from his record, talking about you know what he stands for, what his party versus the other party stands for. Um, he's been doing um, speeches around the state. He's he's made some appearances, whereas Representative Fulcher really didn't do much of any of that. And in that quarter in which he was outraised, he spent more money donating to other Republican congressional candidates from other states, including through the National Republican Congressional Committee, than he spent campaigning in Idaho. In some ways, it makes it appear that Representative Fulcher is just phoning it in, even though he has a very active challenger out on the ground campaigning. On the other hand, this is Idaho's first congressional district. And for a Republican incumbent, that may be a very successful tactic, because if his uh, party members turn out and vote the Republican ticket, he wins, even if he doesn't do anything. And this is a conundrum <laughs> about campaigning in the first congressional district. But it is not unheard of for this district to elect a Democrat. It's been a decade, um, but it has happened in the past. Uh, and a decade was not that long ago. Um, but as you said, this is uh, traditionally a very conservative district. Um, Congressional District 2, Mike Simpson versus Aaron Swisher. This is a rematch uh, from That's two right. years ago. And so um, so what's your take on that race? So unlike the other two races, Representative Simpson has shown a far more active fundraising edge over his opponent. Um, and he has agreed to multiple debates with his opponent. And so it's been a different kind of race um, where the two have been directly engaging on issues, but it's also been pretty low key. It is a rematch. Um, it's likely that voters in the district know who both candidates are and perhaps already know which one they favor. Um, Representative Simpson is running for his 12th term in the House. Um, and has been very popular. On the other hand, Aaron Swisher has been very articulate, very vocal, and has called out um, Representative Simpson on specific issues, and they've engaged in some very good back and forth. I mean, I think it's been a, a cordial race, um, but not a real high profile one, and one in which, at, at least, you know, judging by the fundraising, has been pretty lopsided in favor of the incumbent. You know, the other races that are being overshadowed by all of the news from the presidential race and from COVID-19, the legislative races have not been that high profile this year, but there are some interesting ones on the ballot um, that I know we're keeping an eye on, but what, what are you looking for on Tuesday with the legislative races? So I think that there are some legislative races that could well be close in, in districts like um, District 15 in Boise or, or District 5 in North Central Idaho. Um, but the legislative races have kind of been pushed out of the spotlight this year by the, the intense focus on the presidential race and on the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and also, you know, we do have some, some fairly hot races at the top of the ticket outside of the legislative races. And there are even some hot local races in, in some parts of the state. We haven't heard a lot of heat or light um, on a lot of the legislative races. And 
they are important. Um, most voters will participate in them, even if they went to the polls to vote for president, but some will just pass over those if they don't know who those are. Um, Idaho's legislature, currently 80% of the seats are held by Republicans, as are 100% of the seats in our congressional delegation and our statewide offices. And it doesn't seem like this is a year where we're headed for huge change in that, although there are some unknowns. Um, the legislative races have, have mostly been a matter of um, the status quo. We're hearing the same um, differences of opinion and policy and objections from the same people, and they're going along, <laughs> um, but they haven't been the big focus of attention. And part of that is because some of them actually don't even have competition in the general election. Right. I, I wanted to talk about that because even before the the closures really hit Idaho, really before the floor dropped out from everything in March, there wasn't a lot of activity in filing. You know, there are some historically purple districts, uh, not even recently purple districts like District 6, the Lewiston, Nez Perce County, Orofino area that have had um, Democrats representing them very recently um, that don't have any Democrats running at all this year. This was these were seats that were recently held by um, Democrats, including House Minority Leader John Rushi, that are now unchallenged in the general election. The, the Republicans there are uh, are going to be sworn in. Um, same with Pocatello, but on the other side, again, a district that recently had. Republicans representing it are now two of the three seats are unchallenged. Um, they don't have any Republicans running. The third one I am going to be watching because it is a uh, former House member, Republican Dustin Manwaring, is going to be challenging Chris Abernathy, who has served one term. Um, but again, th these were races that could have been very competitive this year, and nobody signed up. Yeah, and this is not a new phenomenon, unfortunately, in Idaho legislative races. There have been many years in which large numbers of Idaho legislative races have gone uncontested in the general election, which means the voters don't have you know, as, as many options or as much say in how they're represented. And for the most part, many of those decisions are made in the party primaries. Uh, if it's a Democratic district, it's in the Democratic primary. If it's a Republican district, as most of them are, it's in the Republican primary. And that means a smaller slice of Idaho's voters are actually weighing in on what their representation in the legislature is. And that's a shame. Well, for our viewers, we are going to be watching every single legislative race statewide on Tuesday, and we'll have updates on social media and our blog, and of course, a full round rundown next Friday. Um, and Betsy, the Idaho Press has a voter guide for voters in the Treasure Valley. That's right. Um, it is at idahopress.com slash elections. It was already published in two pieces because it's so large in the print newspaper and it is available online. And there in cooperation with the League of Women Voters of Idaho's Vote 411 project, you will find answers to surveys on issues and qualifications from all of the candidates who responded in their own words, along with voter information and key information about where to go and what to do. And we hope it's useful for people as they make this very important decision going up to election day.
And for voters outside of the Treasure Valley, check in with your local newspaper. Most papers do publish similar voter guides. Betsy Russell, thank you so much for your time. I know it is a busy week in the lead up to elections and we appreciate you talking to us today. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for watching. On Tuesday, the Idaho Reports team will have live coverage of the congressional and legislative races on social media and on our blog. Be sure you're following Idaho Reports on Twitter and Facebook. Also, the Idaho Reports blog has a new home. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. So be sure to update your bookmarks. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.